This is DMOU, Destination Marketing Organization University, the DMO Sectors Podcast, and I'm your host, Bill Geist. DMOU is where you hear the best and the brightest in the destination marketing space, sharing innovative and compelling stories to inspire you to take your destination and organization to the next level. The format for our conversations on DMOU is elegantly simple. It's three questions and a bonus round. And today's episode is sponsored by our friends at Searchwide Global, the premier executive search firm in the DMO space. Mike Gamble and his team uncover the talent out there that isn't looking, meaning that clients get a far richer candidate pool from which to choose than just placing ads in pubs and online. And their client satisfaction rate across multiple metrics is an amazing 98%. If you're looking for a new opportunity or looking for the perfect candidate, call them. You can learn more at searchwideglobal.com. And now it's on to our show. Jake Steinman is the founder of the Travelability Summit, as well as North American Journeys, otherwise known as NAJ, which produced boutique networking events in the travel industry, such as the RTO Summits, Active America China, and the eTourism Summit. Also producing touroperatorland.com, a B2B trade website. NAJ also published an annual State of the Industry magazine distributed at IPW, two online newsletters, the Inbound Report and the Travel Vertical, which were all sold to Connect Travel in 2019. Jake founded the Travelability Summit in 2019 in order to help destinations and travel suppliers understand how they can become more accessible for not only the 15% of people who are disabled today, but also for the 75 million baby boomers, many of whom will be aging into disability tomorrow. So Jake Steinman, welcome to DMOU. Thank you, Bill. Great to have you on board. And as we noted in your bio, after years, decades of curating the eTourism Summit, which most people are most familiar with, you found a new calling, the Travelability Summits. And the inaugural event was last year, got rave reviews. Sadly, I missed it because I was presenting the same day at the Destinations International Advocacy Summit. And I was really looking forward to this year's edition. And of course, like everything we looked forward to at the beginning of this year, meeting in person just wasn't possible. But you then shifted and designed a virtual conference that looked simply spectacular until just days ago when you sadly announced the need to postpone the event until next year. But despite that postponement, your work in the space will continue. So question number one, tell us the genesis story of the Travelability Summit. How did you go from what you had been doing for decades with NAJ to, I mean, this is a we all hate the word pivot, but this is a pivot, right? Yeah, it was an unintentional pivot. <laughs> so my office is in Sausalito, which is a kind of a small tourism community outside of uh, San Francisco. And the Chamber of Commerce in 2017 sent me a notice that North American Journeys, NAJ, was Travel Agent of the Year in Sausalito. And I looked at this award and I thought... <laughs> There must not be any other travel agents here, and North American Journeys sounded the closest <laughs> thing they had to a travel agent, so they sent me this award, and I thought nothing of it. But during the course of the year, a number of people, about two to three people a month, started knocking on my door asking for planning a vacation. And uh, they were not only knocking on my door, some were actually sitting on my doorstep waiting for me to come to work. And I realized that, uh, you know, in, in an era where all the information is available to them online, they had to be pretty desperate to, you know, cold call a, uh, what they thought was a travel agent. Yeah. But after about uh, two or three months, I started to notice that half of the people that were knocking on my door had somebody with a disability 
that they were going to be uh, on a vacation with. And so and they couldn't find the information online, right? They couldn't find any information online. Yeah. And they were all asking about destinations. And, you know, they wanted to know where they could go. Someone wanted to go to Utah, to the national parks. Someone wanted to go to uh, Hawaii and wanted to know which island was the most accessible for somebody with a wheelchair. Someone else wanted to go to Georgia and they had somebody with autism in the family and they wanted to know what there was to do so they wouldn't be humiliated in public. After about 10 of these, you know, I started to think about baby boomers, people like me aging into a disability in five or six years, you know, you know, as they turn 65, people start aging into a disability. So I started to do some research and I found this is a, a market about to explode uh, in five years that wasn't being served that nobody really knew much about. And right. so I started to do some research and found who the main thought leaders and influencers were in the accessible travel space, which turned out to be, you know, kind of the head of accessible product for Airbnb and bloggers that had huge audiences because there was nowhere else people could go for that kind of information. They had audiences of 70 uh, to 100,000 people. Wow. And so I found all these people that were sort of in the community and I started asking them questions. Through that listening tour, I met a lot of uh, people who were disabled and I was just su surprised that they were, you know, that they were so focused on travel as a, a part of their life when it's so difficult for us to travel. I mean, it's a hassle for us to travel, you know, the airport experience and the, you know, going through security and sitting in a plane and all the things that, that we go through. So I met people like uh, John Morris, who um, was in an accident eight years ago and had uh, three of his limbs amputated. And he's left with a, a, a limp arm and he's in a motorized wheelchair and he travels over 300 days a year pre-COVID. Mm -hmm. Places like Tanzania for safaris, you know, Argentina for a month, traveling all over the world on these lengthy, long-haul you know, flights. So I started talking to them and getting their backstories, which was really important. So I asked him, uh, you know, here he is with 75,000 followers in wow. all of his social media yeah. posts. And uh, uh, I asked him, what did you do before you were, you know, before this? And he was a high school guidance counselor analyst for a, a board of education, which was a good job, but it was certainly anonymous. You know, it wasn't as interesting as what he's doing now. And I, and I noticed him telling me that he said, you know, he said, that accident was the best thing to ha that ever happened to me. As I got the same thing from this Miss Wheelchair California. She was 22 years old. She's super tech savvy. She was in a snowboarding accident. And now, you know, she's uh, representing, you know, wheelchair accessibility in California. You know, I sent her to the CES in Las Vegas to basically go through the, they have a whole accessibility section and see what kind of products that we could feature for, you know, that were, that would make travel easier. Yeah. And she had the same thing. And I realized that we were finding people that once they got through the, the dark zone of understanding that their lives have changed forever and they come out the other side, they sort of discovered this sort of a leadership gene that they never would have found otherwise. That's when I sort of flipped 
from, okay, we're producing a conference because this is a big market coming at us of baby boomers and it's a market opportunity to people with disabilities are very adaptive and they think they're restricted from travel. And, and the people that I was meeting were really basically somebody who, who could inspire them to travel. Because as you know, my mantra has always been travel is the toy department of life and people with disabilities should be able to enjoy it too. And so I became sort of a, an advocate. And at the same time, you know, I started to call the destinations and the hotels and all these contacts that I've built up over the years. And I spent a couple, you know, like three or four weeks just on the phone with, with people. And I found out that, you know, the hotel motivation around uh, accessibility and people with disabilities don't understand this is they live in mortal fear of being sued because their doors are an inch off uh, from being accessible. And so when they see somebody in a wheelchair or who's blind that comes into their hotel, all they see is a lawsuit. Right. And so I thought that, you know, through the content of the conference and, you know, we could kind of bring all these uh, areas out. And, you know, the speakers were primarily people from either disability organizations or they were disabled themselves, disabled travelers, the ones that I talked with during this listening tour. And... Uh, there was this sort of disconnect because the DMOs and the hotels were talking about these are the cool things we're doing for people with disabilities. So we found destinations that were doing things and we found hotels that were focusing on their accessible features, but the uh, disability community that spoke really found that they, they really wanted something else. You know, there was this sort of disconnect about what was really accessible and what they thought was accessible and what the disability community thought was successful. And it centered around a lot around attitude and uh, attitudes all around training. So the training, the actual training uh, is a function that I see the destinations have as part of their role in the, in the you know, stakeholder community. And I thought, you know, this is something that we could really do is get involved in the training side of it. You know, we actually had uh, a panel there with a, with a plaintiff lawyer and a defense lawyer that got involved in accessibility law. And the plaintiff lawyer, he wasn't one of those sleazeballs, you know, that's representing 200 lawsuits and, you know, they're basically sending demand letters. It was somebody who was a legitimate plaintiff lawyer and he actually spoke at the conference and he said something that stuck with me. And he said that if the companies and the people there at those companies had expressed any kind of kindness to the people with disabilities that he was representing, all the lawsuits would have been gone. It was all, all people just dismissing them, marginalizing them. So these are all training issues. And so I thought, here's another role for DMOs, because they, they have to train stakeholders down to the cab drivers who are bringing people from the airport in a lot of, a lot of cases yeah. about you know, sensitivity training for, for tourism. So once I found that out, uh, you know, I saw a clear road and a, uh, a path for travelability to really continue growing by you know, focusing on training issues, focusing on providing, there's just a, a lack of information. Uh, that's the other thing that came out of the conference is there's just you know, no organized structure 
to provide information other than, you know, the assumption that buildings are ADA compliant because it's part of the law. So we're, we were trying to change the perception of people with disabilities from a compliance headache to a vibrant future market that was going to be driving uh, travel decisions. You say that you are trying to do that. You still are doing that and will continue to do that through the website and then planning for the Travelability Summit coming up next year. You know, when we talked a few months ago, you said that with that first year conference under your belt last year, you really did see a substantial interest from DMOs to better understand their role. But not unlike the uncomfortable conversations we're having on race, you told me that what was holding many DMOs back is just not knowing the questions to ask. So how should a DMO, outside of coming to the Travelability Summit website, how does a DMO get started to understand that there's a real opportunity here to enrich the lives of so many of their current and future guests, as well as doing the right thing? This all started with a bogus award, you know, which was a way for the universe to speak, you know, speaks to you in different ways. And uh, there was one way for the universe to speak to me. I saw how Leonard Hoops from Visit Indy, right. you know, how he approached uh, accessibility in his destination. I thought it was the best way I've seen. And that is he organized a meeting between the primary disability organizations in his uh, city. You know, they found the, you know, the cerebral palsy, he found the, uh, you know, the autism organization, you know, six or seven of the organizations that he convened and said, we want to, you know, we want to be more accessible. Where do we start? Where should we start? Well, that helped him in two ways. First of all, he started, to, he was going to build a landing page and he needed nowhere to go. So those organizations already knew what was, you know, pretty much knew what was accessible for their constituents in the city of Indianapolis because they live there and they've been, and they have members and they have donors. And so they were able to tell him where the low hanging fruit was, you know, these are the things that are accessible. This museum is great for this. This zoo is fabulous for this. So he was able to get you know, content ideas. But uh, most importantly, uh, he got buy-in from them because they were just asked for their opinion. They were so happy that they were asked for their opinion that once he built the landing page, they started promoting it to their members and their, constitu their constituents. And so they had buy-in. And the, the disability community has a saying, nothing about us without us. Yeah, great and line. And he started with them. And so that's how I would recommend starting is just convening uh, a group of disability organizations that are in your area. The second action that I would take that I think is really that, that we're getting a lot of traction on. And I, I started to think about what, you know, what, what's our ROI for Travelability Summit? I mean, what did we want out of it? And, and I came to the conclusion that we need, that the number of landing pages that weren't there before travelability that are there now after travelability from our, there were 11 of them that came out of travelability summit. So I realized that if we provide them with the information and kind of, you know, the, the different steps they can take 
uh, to build a landing page, which is what is needed. There's a lot of infrastructure, but there's very little uh, information infrastructure, you know, on, on accessible travel uh, in these different destinations. Absolutely. So first, so when people are knocking on my door, the first thing they asked about was, you know, where can we go? The second thing was, where can we stay? And the third thing was, you know, what can we do? That's all information DMOs have access to. And so, you know, so we have this, you know, this, this initiative called Advancing Accessibility One Landing Page at a Time. We're going to build a landing page tracker on our website that tracks all the landing pages that exist. And uh, we're going to try to help scale the number of landing pages. Uh, you know, and I was surprised because I spoke with you know, a number of, you know, there are a number of different states and uh, some cities and some attractions that were hesitant to put up the landing pages because they, they felt they weren't perfect and they, they thought they'd get criticized because of imperfection. And the fact is that every disability has a spectrum. They're never going to be accessible for everybody. It just isn't possible. These landing pages should be like a living organism, like a work in progress, like a wiki that just keeps getting added to as people find new things. Well, every page should be. Yeah, absolutely. And so I looked at it and I thought, okay, this, this fear of imperfection is something that should be embraced as a, you know, because this is something that, you know, that as people use it, you'll get more information. So our concept is really you know, we're working with a couple of destinations to do a, uh, like a prototype of what a landing page uh, should be and, you know, and, and how long it takes to build one, what it costs at a certain, you know, uh, amount per hour to have a researcher. And uh, it's, it's relatively inexpensive and it's not that time consuming. And so it looked at how some of the destinations have created landing pages. Some, some have gone to their universities and talked to their marketing professors and then who made it a, uh, uh, a class project in the marketing department. Another, you know, had interns that they used and to do the research. That's fairly low cost. And right now during a lull, this is something productive that they could do. Not only will they build a landing page for the 15% of the people who are disabled who, you know, right now, who are, you know, who may visit their destination. But that landing page will also be useful to locals, the local community, and 15% of them are disabled, statistically. And uh, they might, may not even know what's available in their, their own backyard. And so suddenly, DI's Community Values Initiative sort of dovetails in with mm -hmm. this accessibility initiative. So this is, I, I think, something that, that the DMOs can do, you know, convene a meeting with their stakeholders. The other is really, you know, building a landing page. And the landing page should have a caveat that pops up that says, this is a work in progress. It's so not true. Per perfect. If you find things that are wrong or find things that should be included, click here and it opens up into a form where they can add to it or, you know, or, or change something that goes to someone at the DMO that will, you know, make, make the changes. And that's how it, it becomes improved. I mean, I, I saw a, a landing page. One of the, one of the, one of the states actually launched a new website and it had an accessible 
logo on it. And I clicked on it, and this was back in June, and there were three items. I thought, wow, this is really weak. Why even bother? So then I clicked on it again last week, and there were 19 items on there, and including uh, a filter for hotels you know, that had accessible rooms. So the, the community is building it out in real time. Yeah, they build it out in real time themselves. The community basically helps build it out. It, so That's instead fantastic. of people who are disabled looking at that landing page and criticizing it, you flip the mindset to where they're helping to build it. And then you get a lot of buy-in with the, yeah. you know, with the local uh, elected officials, and you can do PSAs and a lot of promotion around it. Uh, the third thing is really you're you're really building for uh, baby boomers, and now I just saw the stat from Health Today: forty percent of baby sixty five have a disability, so uh, it's twenty five percent more than the general population, and uh, that group controls seventy percent of all the discretionary income, and they stand to inherit thirteen trillion dollars from their parents globally. And they're going to drive travel because they're going to be able to fund intergenerational travel, multi-generational travel. And I'm part of that group, so I just feel it myself. You know, I'm paying for, you know, for vacation, family vacations, because it's a bonding experience. And so they're going to go where they can, you know, where they're accessible. So they're actually building for the future market at the same time. But here's the caution. I know how our minds work. If somebody has created a template, or for a landing page, I'm going to go replicate that. And so you, in your first two points, I think that they have to both happen. And that is, is yeah, you're going to provide the guidance to here's what something like that might look like or links to here are some great examples that you can build off of. But as you said in the very beginning, you've got to have your disability community as part of the initial conversations mm -hmm. Or it's mm -hmm. not going to work. There's not a shortcut here. Both of those things have to happen, correct? Correct. The landing pages that exist right now, they hadn't even thought of travel from the airport. You know, how would I find an accessible taxi? Or just, if that's not there, why bother? You know, they're not going to fly in and just, you know, they're, they're not going to be able to get to the hotel you yep. know, or have somebody pick them up. You know, and, and the other thing is really, uh, you know, renting medical equipment. So these are all things that could be put on a landing page that we're going to be experimenting with in, in, uh, you know, in, in, in developing a prototype. Yeah. And one other thing that I would suggest for any DMO who's listening in is as you continue to look to diversification of your board, and I wrote a position paper on this this past year in conjunction with Searchwide Global and Destinations International, this isn't just about ethnicity, race, gender, age. But I got to tell you, having somebody with a disability on your board of directors is really life-changing. And I wasn't smart enough to go out in my first DMO and do that. I actually inherited a board that had somebody in a chair on the board. And her presence made my decisions always much clearer. And our marketing always included imagery of people in chairs or other disabilities because we wanted to be inclusive. I mean, this was even back, you know, in the eighties. I mean, it was a gift, honestly, to me to have somebody like that on my board. And I, I encourage everybody that if you can find somebody who has a passion for what we do, 
that has a disability, find a way to move them onto your board because it makes you a lot smarter, a lot faster. I agree. So question number three, Summit now is on postponement. Tell us what you're going to continue to do over the next year as you as you said to me offline, you know, a lot of the content, you're just going to roll over to next year and then obviously find new content to go and be fresher for 2021. But in the meantime, during that next year, as we wait for the ability to hopefully reconvene in person for the Travelability Summit, what are you going to be doing to advance accessibility over the next 12 months? Well, first of all, we're going to continue with our newsletter. And it's a great read. It's called the Travelability Insider. It's a companion newsletter to the to the event. And we're continuing with that. And uh, we have over 3,000 people now that have read the newsletter. And we have about a 50% wow. open rate for the newsletter every every issue. And so we're going to continue with that. We have collaborated with an agency called Design Sensory to create a podcast, ongoing podcast called Explore Able. Um, each episode uh, interviews different thought leaders in the travel accessibility space. And it's this uh, two blind guys that are on our advisory board that created that. And uh, one from Expedia and, and, and one from, from Design Sensory. So that's another thing we're doing. And then the last thing we're doing is we're, we're, we're focusing on these landing pages uh, and scaling them. And I think what happens is you get to a point where there's, you know, 30 or 40 landing pages on our website that we can promote to not only to the disability community, but also destinations start to see what other destinations are doing. And they feel sort of internal pressure to do the same thing. And I think we can scale the landing pages uh, to a hundred. So our, our goal is really to scale landing pages, you know, keep the newsletter going, which talks about all the development and in technology and ideas around accessibility and how mainstream it's becoming. And then the podcast. And then uh, we will probably create some webinars that we will do on a monthly or once every two month basis that will focus on some of the more inspirational content from the conference to give people a taste of what's, you know, of what is happening. So those are things we're planning on to keep it going. Well, great stuff. And so great that you got a bogus award to get this all started because you're right. It's one of those things that you don't think about unless you're faced with it. And so many of us that are currently active leading our DMOs haven't been. And yet those of Mm -hmm. us who have been have done some really amazing things, you know, like Mark Garcia Mm -hmm. at Mesa and, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. know, that's the first um, autism certified uh, travel destination in America. It's amazing stuff. And Mark's going to be on the show uh, in the next couple of weeks. So it's great stuff, Jake. Congratulations. And thank you on behalf of all of us. But it's time now for the bonus round question. You've always been driven to make all of your conferences that you execute entertaining, which led you to think that maybe having a leopard on stage was a good idea. Tell us how that turned out. <laughs> you would bring that up. To see, uh, so <laughs> so uh, um, one year at one of our conferences, we were like in the middle. It was like during one of these recession years. And the, the theme of the conference was, it's a jungle out there. So I decided, you know, we're going to make this entertaining. So I had basically a recording of jungle noises. It called for my coming out 
on the stage with all these jungle sounds. And I was basically reading a Rudyard Kipling poem. And then a live leopard was to walk out on the stage and then walk back. And then we would start the conference. Well, I rented this leopard. This was in Chicago. You know, everything went to, uh, according to plan until the leopard went out on the stage and wouldn't come back. So the first three rows at the, of attendees just started moving back to the back of the room. They're, they're just waiting for me to be <laughs> something to happen. And uh, they were kind of laughing and, you know, and I was sort of nervous. <laughs> and so I started to just babble right. on about housekeeping. This is what we're going to do. And just the, uh, you know, <laughs> it's going to start here and then we're going to have lunch here and then we're going to do this and, you know, waiting for this. And yeah, I, nonchalantly like nothing's wrong, nothing to see here. Suddenly I see chunks of meat being <laughs> thrown out on the stage behind me, trying to pull the leopard off the stage by... <laughs> throwing chunks of meat in different places, you know, so it's just like breadcrumbs that will lead him off the stage. So he comes over and, and eats the chunk and then he sits down again. He doesn't come off. And so she throws another chunk and so another chunk and he's getting really close to me. So she throws another chunk. I don't know why she did that, but it landed uh, on my, you know, on, on my foot. Oh no. And he came over and ate that and he was sitting on my foot when she finally came out to get him. And when he left off, there were drops on my shoe. <laughs> and I don't know if they were his or mine, to be honest with you, Bill. <laughs> Somebody peed. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> a new way to conduct a urine test, I guess. <laughs> Is there video of this anywhere? Uh, no. Oh, no, are you kidding? Geez. Oh. <laughs> yeah, you, you would oh, go super God. viral with that. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah. that's a well, great story. I'm telling story. you, that's the first time I've told anybody about that in a long time. <laughs> so I didn't anyway. even know you could rent leopards. but <laughs> Yeah, it was $500. He was, uh, he was ancient. I mean, he was huge. He was like, he stood about five feet tall. I'd never seen a, a, you know, a leopard that big. Uh, but he was ancient, and uh, he was like 95 years old in leopard years. Yeah. And he had this big bro diamond, you know, sort of fake diamond brooch. So anyway. So great. <laughs> that's my story. Hey, it's a wonderful. That's one of the best ones we've heard. Thank you, Jake. And thanks again <laughs> okay. for all you're doing in Travelability. Uh, again, people can find you at the TravelabilitySummit.com website. And I really encourage everybody to sign up for the newsletter. Always a great read. And again, on behalf of all of us, thanks for what you're doing, and we can't wait for next year. Well, thank you, Bill. I really appreciate the opportunity uh, to, you know, to do this with you. So, Absolutely. That's it right. for this edition of DMOU. Tell your friends and peers this is the place where the best and the brightest get together to tell inspiring stories for DMO pros. Thanks, too, to our sponsor, Searchwide Global, the premier executive search firm in the DMO space. Mike Gamble and his team uncover the talent out there that isn't looking, meaning that clients get a far richer candidate pool from which to choose than just placing ads in pubs and online. If you're looking for a new opportunity or looking for the perfect candidate, you can find them at searchwideglobal.com. 
DMOPros.com is where you're going to find more on our services to the DMO world, plus links to the Z News, our Knowledge Bank videos, blogs, and the biggest DMO job board on the planet, as well as links to earlier episodes of DMOU. That's DMOPros with a Z.com. Executive producer of DMOU is Terry White, and this is a production of DMO Pros. I'm your host, Bill Geist. Until next time. Mm-hmm.